Let's uh, continue in a posture of prayer and uh, once again bow our hearts and minds uh, to the Lord our God. God, you are in heaven and we are in earth. Uh, We have come to this place now to listen to what it is that you have to say to your church. We thank you that you are still using this ancient word to speak to hearts and minds and transform people. Father, you are Lord over over this church and you are Lord over your word. And we acknowledge your lordship this morning. We pray that we would listen well and that, Lord, um, you would work in us change for your kingdom and for your namesake. Um, Help this not to be just simply a routine moment, uh, but a moment in which you would be addressing us personally, um, perhaps uncomfortably, uh, but all in the name of redemption and uh, bringing us from A to B to C uh, for your kingdom. So, Lord, be with us now. Um, Help us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was about 16 years old, uh, one day I was out at uh, the lake in Alberta riding around on uh, the Honda ATV that we used to have. Uh, It was a three-wheeled motorized trike, sort of like the one in the picture on the screen. And on this particular day, I was zipping along by myself on the trike through the sand trails that were part of an alpine forest that was close to our cabin. I think at age 16 I was somewhat, well, no, I I know that I was, um, overconfident in my ability to handle the machine at high speeds. And so at one point I was on a straightaway, so I cranked up the speed on the bike, but ahead of me, about 50 feet or so, there was a, a sharp curve to the left. And I remember that the sand kind of banked up on the curve coming right at me. I hit the curve at too high a speed. And the next thing I remember is waking up, coming to, flat on my back, staring up at the sky, at the tops of the trees, with the trike upside down and still running uh, about five feet away from me. And there was a warm sensation on my right arm. I remember that very clearly. When I looked over at my right arm, it was covered with a significant amount of blood. Uh, There was a tree branch sticking out of my arm. And I still have the scar in the crook of my elbow uh, to prove it. I managed to get up. I ripped the branch out of my arm. And I got the machine turned over. And I kind of hobbled back. I remember looking at my arm. It was all kind of like from the movies. A lot of blood on my arm. And I I finally got back to the cabin and uh, just kind of laid down in the bed there, and my mom attended to me and and helped me out. I tell that story uh, to say that that was but one instance in my life out of many that I can think of where I misjudged something. I misjudged the corner and my speed, and the result was a bad result. Of course, it would have been a lot better of an outcome had I wisely judged the corner and my rate of speed. Friends, there are many times in our lives where it's very good for us to make a proper judgment. Are you with me? 
If you have to drive somewhere in this city, in Montreal, and uh, you know before you start driving that there's a big construction delay in part of the route that you're about to take, you will judge that it's ill-advised to take that route and you'll take an alternate route. In fact, you and I make judgments every single day, don't we? If you're the parent of a small child and you correct the behavior of your child, you've made a judgment that your child's behavior was bad and needs correcting. If you go to a restaurant and you see mice running all over the floor and you leave that restaurant, you have judged that it's probably not good for your health to eat at such an establishment. If you go to the grocery store and you see that one brand of soap on the shelf is advertised for $2 less than the competing brand, you will probably judge that it would be better to take the cheaper dish soap and save some money. If I hire a guy to come and paint my house, and later I find him leaving with my credit card hanging out the back of his jeans, I will make the right judgment next time and hire a different painter. The point is, and we could belabor this, but the point is that you and I make judgments every day, and so we should. But with this in mind, how exactly do we interpret the words of Jesus in Matthew 7.1 when Jesus makes a statement that sounds pretty uh, totalizing? Jesus says, judge not, that you be not judged. And the question is, what does Jesus mean here precisely? Now, no doubt, this first verse of Matthew 7, I think it probably ranks up there as being one of the most quoted Bible verses in our culture. Would you agree with that? Judge not that you be not judged. Now, when most people in our culture use this verse or quote this verse, what they generally mean is something like this. You have... No right to bring any comment whatsoever on my actions, on my lifestyle, on the way that I think, the way that I dress, the way that I am, the way that I behave. Judge not that you be not judged. The prevailing idea in our day is that nobody has any right, not one person is qualified to suggest to another person how to live or how to be. No one has the right to impose his or her worldview or beliefs or morals on another person. And in fact, in our day, we've gone even further than this. Not only are we forbidden from saying to somebody, hey, I want to suggest to you that, that maybe you're a little off here and that, that there's a better way. Not only are we not allowed to say that, not only are we forbidden from judging, we are actually expected to approve of every and all actions and behaviors. I want to suggest, as we get into our biblical text now, 
that most times, most times, when Matthew 7.1 is employed by people in our culture, it is employed in a misguided way or in a way that lacks a basic understanding of what Jesus is actually saying. And feel free to call me judgmental for saying that. Uh, I, I think it's very, very instructive for us to look at this verse, first of all, to look at it in connection with other verses that we find in the immediate context. Would you do that with me? What we notice, interestingly enough, is that Jesus himself clearly makes judgment calls on people in this very passage of Scripture. If you have a Bible in front of you, notice that down in verse 6, Jesus calls certain people dogs and pigs. Two terms that are quite derogatory, especially in the day of Jesus. Notice further that down in verses 15 through 20, Jesus calls another set of people false prophets and ravenous wolves and diseased trees. Clearly, Jesus himself, who says, do not judge, in verse 1, is using critical discernment concerning the kinds of people that he mentions in these other verses. Going further, in John 7.24, Jesus calls on us to, quote, judge with right judgment. And in Matthew 18.15, Jesus commends, in certain circumstances, he commends that we tell our brother his fault which would indicate, wouldn't it, that we have to make some sort of judgment call on the behavior of our brother. 1 John 4.1, the apostle commends there the testing of spirits when we are around people, which again implies that judgment has some legitimacy. And over in 1 Corinthians 5 and 6, the apostle Paul instructs the Corinthians there to withdraw fellowship from a certain man who was a notorious idolater, which again implies that the Corinthians had to discern and they had to make judgments concerning this particular guy. So then back to our question. What precisely does Jesus mean in Matthew 7-1 when he says to us, Judge not that you be not judged. The basic answer here, and almost every commentator that I consulted goes this way, is that Jesus means do not condemn people. Do not judge with an unfair sort of harshness. Do not be censorious toward others, or do not be severely critical of them. Now, I want you to listen carefully. To be discerning is different than being condemnatory. 
Would you agree with that? To be discerning is different than being condemnatory. To evaluate with prudence and with charity is different than being censorious and harshly critical. Jesus commands us to be merciful and generous and humble in our view of others, to not be condemning and ugly and unfair with harsh assessments of other people. So many of us are prone to fault-finding when we look at other people. And Jesus knows that. And Jesus here, who is the new Moses, commands us to stop it. It may help us to consider here that the parallel passage in Luke 6, verse 37, includes the word condemn. So the first words of Luke 6, 37 read like this. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. So Jesus is after this tendency in us to condemn others. And I want to say this, the only one who has any business condemning people, if he sees fit to do so, is God, not us. Only Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, made flesh, the second person of the Trinity, only he has sufficient wisdom and information on people to call certain people pigs and dogs, as he does in verse 6. We do not. So who's the person that Jesus is after in our passes? The, The person that he's after is you and me. Please don't listen to this sermon and think, I really hope so-and-so is listening to this. Please don't think, I wish so-and-so were here to hear this. Focus solely on yourself, and I will do the same, without deflecting to anybody else. Please. Each and every one of us can tend toward self-righteous, pharisaical, hypercritical uh, vantage point that is spiced up with a superiority, superiority complex on the side, blissfully unaware and blind to our own faults and flaws. Are you with me this morning? This week in my study, I actually said the word ouch out loud, and I felt quite convicted about myself when I read the following quote from Dale Allison. He said, human beings, so that's me and that's you, human beings unhappily possess an inbred proclivity to mix ignorance of themselves with arrogance toward others. I want to read that one more time. Human beings, that's me and that's you, 
unhappily possess an inbred proclivity to mix ignorance of themselves with arrogance toward others. My friend, how self-aware are you this morning? Are you aware of yourself? Jesus is helping us to become aware of ourselves. Jesus in our passage is after the person who condemns others, the person who is severely critical, censorious toward others. The person that Jesus is after here is described well, I think, by John Stott. I want to read you this quote from Stott, but again, as I do, please try to rein in your mind as best you can with the Holy Spirit being your helper, reign in your mind from thinking of another person or persons who need to hear this and focus only on yourself and your own heart as painful as that might be. Would you do that? And I will do it too. Let's allow the Spirit this morning to do his heart surgery on us, which he always wants to do. Stott wrote this, The censorious critic is a fault finder who is negative and destructive towards other people and enjoys, enjoys actively seeking out their failings. He or she puts the worst possible construction on their motives, pours cold water on their schemes, and is ungenerous toward their mistakes. Worse than that, he says, to be censorious is to set oneself up as a censor and so to claim the competence and authority to sit in judgment on one's fellow man. Again I say, ouch, ouch. When Jesus says, judge not, in Matthew 7, 1, it is this condemnatory attitude that he's talking about. And notice that he says in verse 1, now leading into verse 2, he says, judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now, in a nutshell, in a nutshell, Jesus at the end of verse 1 and then also now into verse 2 is talking about, listen, is talking about God judging us. God judging us by the same standard and with the same measure that we use to judge others. So, friend, if If I want to sit on the judge's bench as a self-appointed authority who is prone to condemn others, I must not be surprised when at the judgment of rewards I am judged by the same standard that I used on other people. If I'm quick to condemn somebody for their careless use of words, God will examine me concerning my own use of words. If I write somebody off because they were dishonest toward me, God will pull out the evidence on the times and the places where I was dishonest. And so on and so forth. 
Well, let's go forward in this rather uncomfortable passage to verse 3 now. Now, as a preface to verse 3, did you know, friend, and I want you to hear this and I want you to take it to heart, did you know that you and I, though indeed we may find a sick comfort in, in sitting on the judge's bench condemning others, we are, all of us, disqualified from that bench. Did you know that? We are disqualified as being condemnatory judges. We have absolutely zero entitlement to sit on the judge's bench condemning other people. Each and every one of us, and it doesn't matter who we are, each and every one of us are utterly incapable of rendering such judgments for the reason that we all have been born into this world, into a condition called original sin, and we commit sins. Because each and every one of us is a sinner in a fallen world, we have no qualifications, we have no rights, we have no entitlements to sit on the, bu- on the bench condemning other sinners. In verse 3, Jesus says, famously, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Now, I want you to notice something here that is very important. Notice the particular way This is interesting. The particular way that Jesus frames his question in this verse. Jesus might have said, are you seeing a speck in your brother's eye but not noticing the log that's in in your own eye? Are you? Because I can't be 100% sure. He might have framed the question that way, but Jesus doesn't frame the question that way. Jesus is not seeking information here as to what our situation is. Rather, Jesus assumes, doesn't he? He assumes here that we are already seeing the speck in our brother's eye but not noticing the log in our own eye. He knows human beings all too well. He assumes that this is already our trouble. Notice how he says it. Why do you see the speck? You already do. So why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Now, let's define our terms a little bit here in verse 3. The speck that Jesus mentions here could be a little tiny piece of sawdust or a tiny little fragment of straw or chaff that had blown into a person's eye. On the other hand, the log that Jesus mentions here that he says is in our eye, this is a long plank of wood a beam of wood that would be used in the construction of a roof. Why do you see the speck, the little tiny piece of sawdust that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Now, of course, the speck and the log here are both meant to symbolize something else, right? To symbolize sins, faults, And flaws. (laughs) 
See, friends, what we humans tend to do is we tend to see the tiny speck, uh, the, the little wrongs or the tiny sins in others, right? And we magnify those things. I can't believe how unself-aware you are. You are such an idiot, right? You deserve what you get for your obvious mistake. You need to change. And if you had just listened to me, I have the answers to your problems, right? And all the while, friends, it gets hard to hold that up. All the while, we are blind to our own major issues. We are blissfully unaware of the log that's in our own eye. We are blind to the gravity of our own faults. Now, I would say that exhibit A of what Jesus is talking about here in the Bible is is in the story of David in 2 Samuel chapter 12. David with the plank in his eye. David completely unself-aware as he busily condemns the man who is in Nathan's parable, the rich man who had stolen from the poor man, all the while not realizing, of course, that the rich man in Nathan's parable was him, was David. Nathan was talking all the while about David and David's grievous sin, but David didn't realize that it was about him until finally the lights went on and David became convicted. We can be so utterly blind to our own unrighteousness. Are you with me this morning? I know this is a difficult word from Jesus, but it's true of all of us. We can be so utterly blind to our own unrighteousness. Paul Tripp tells a great story about blindness to our own unrighteousness from his experience in marriage counseling. You ready for this, married couples? Tripp says, The husband comes to counseling with a long list of his wife's sins, her weaknesses and failures, but with little awareness or concern for his own. And his wife comes armed with a detailed list of her husband's wrongs, but with little reference to her own. When I ask the husband, what's wrong with your marriage? He doesn't talk about himself. (laughs) He talks about his wife. And when I ask the wife what is wrong, she doesn't talk about herself. She talks about her husband. And then Tripp asks the killer question with his tongue firmly planted in his cheek. He says this, how is it possible to have two utterly righteous people and a marriage that is broken and dysfunctional? (laughs) That's a case, friends, of two people simply being people. We tend to be blind to the log in our own eye, blissfully unaware of our own lack of righteousness. Let's go to verse 4. Jesus says, another question here, Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, 
when there is the log in your own eye. You know, I went to the optometrist uh, a couple of weeks back. When you're dealing with somebody's eye, you have to get up close to inspect it, right? You've been to the optometrist, you know they come right up to you. And you have to be oh so gentle with the eye because the eye is probably the most sensitive part of the human body and the most fragile. I'm thankful for my optometrist because she's very gentle and she's careful. Imagine if she came into the examination room like this. Oh, hey, let's take a look at your eye. Right? <laughs> Two things would happen there. She wouldn't have a clear vision of my eye, right? Because her own vision is impaired by the log. And secondly, my own eye would be in grave danger. I probably would run out of the room at that point. Because I don't want that thing flailing around and possibly getting in my eye. As John Piper has put it, you can't do delicate, loving eye surgery with a log hanging out of your eye. Verse 5. You hypocrite, says Jesus. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. I think it's very important for us to note that here in verse 5, we have Jesus' only use of the word hypocrite to refer to a disciple in all of Matthew's gospel. All his other uses of this word hypocrite in Matthew are either in reference to the Pharisees and scribes or to those who live outside the kingdom. But here, he's addressing us this morning as disciples. He calls the disciple a hypocrite. Ouch. In the words of Charles Quarles, a hypocrite in this context is who? Is a person who is blind to his or her own sin, but keenly aware of the faults of others. The hypocrite is devoted, and I love this phrase, is devoted to inspection without introspection. I like that. Devoted to inspection of others without introspection. That is, judging others, but doing no work to judge himself or herself. As Quarles says, the hypocrite does careful examination of others without any sincere evaluation of himself. Jesus says, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Well, how do we take the log out of our own eye? What is Jesus talking about here? Basically, he's talking about each and every one of us doing some serious self-work. He's talking about taking a long, hard look in the mirror. Are you willing to do that in your life? Taking a long, hard look in the mirror. He's talking about doing some sober self-examination, discerning just what our attitude toward others actually is. Right? Asking questions like, what did I mean precisely when I made that comment to so-and-so? What need in me was I trying to fulfill when I made that rather rude and derogatory comment? Where am I so thirsty of soul 
that I feel this need to condemn other people? Could it be that I am desperately insecure about myself, that I have this need to condemn other people? What are my common sins? And how do those sins present themselves and play themselves out? Have I approached another brother and sister and asked their help that I can become more self-aware, as painful as it might be? Am I big enough to admit that I have real problems? These kinds of questions. Jesus is calling us in verse 5 to do the painful work of examining our own hearts, to gain a sober consciousness consciousness of our own flaws and our own sins and our own negative patterns. And thereby, what happens when you do that? You gain a true and real humility and a sympathy for other people and a compassion for other people and a healthy sense of your own unworthiness. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye and then, notice, and then you will see clearly to do what? To take the speck out of your brother's eye. Notice this very carefully, friends. Notice this very carefully because where people around us in the culture like to say that everybody is always forbidden from judging another person in any way, shape, or form. Where people around us may like to argue that no time is the right time to bring correction to another person because of that person's uh, attitudes or life choices or errors. Where people in culture say that, Jesus says here, No, there is a time when you can approach another person to take the speck out of his or her eye. To help a person get out of error. Or to help them see that they're going down a bad road. But that time, friends, is only when you yourself have done the hard self-work that we have just talked about. The only time that you should want to perform surgery on another person's delicate, fragile, sensitive eye or soul, the only time that you should want to address a person's speck is when you yourself have taken the massive plank out of your own eye, when you yourself have thoroughly examined yourself and come clean and repented of your own stuff. Because at that point, you're going to be humbled. At that point, you will be genuine in your concern for other people and have a a real, with weeping, sense of, I want to help this person. You'll be empathetic and sympathetic because you have a clear view of the horror of your own sin. Jesus says to us this morning, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, 
Let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye. You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. And then finally he says to us in verse 6, get this. Do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Now, isn't this fascinating? (laughs) This sixth verse of this passage flows right out of verses 1 through 5. Jesus has just finished warning us and commanding us at some length about not judging And now suddenly in verse 6, he seems to require us to make judgments on who is a dog and who is a pig. We are not to give the dogs what is holy and we are not to give the pigs our pearls. What is going on here? I think the simplest explanation is that verse 6 is like the other side of the seesaw. The counterweight to do not judge. So in other words, if in verses 1 through 5, Jesus has been saying to us, don't be condemnatory toward others and don't be hypocritical since you yourself have a log in your eye. Then now in verse 6, he gives us the balancing word, which is, don't be foolish though. And pretend that every person in the world is the same and will receive the kingdom message with welcome arms. Don't be naive in thinking that there's no need to discriminate amongst people when you are sharing the gospel. Some people, says Jesus, are dogs and some are pigs. This is a hard word. I think Jesus is referring to those who he sees as particularly wicked people who will show contempt and who will show irreverence for the Christian message and who will mock the gospel and possibly spit at its messengers. Jesus uses the word pearl and he also uses the phrase what is holy to describe the gospel message. And he clearly says that not every situation, I want you to hear this well, not every situation, not every circumstance or opportunity is a wise situation or opportunity in which to share the gospel. We need to learn to discriminate in the sharing of the Christian witness. I really like here what Scott McKnight has said as he comments on this sixth verse. McKnight says this, we need to ask if speaking up in a given situation will honor or vilify Christ. And then to act accordingly, he says, there is no reason to venture forward if we discern confidently that this will yield nothing but an opportunity for someone to take a shot in public at God and the church. Instead, he says, we need to learn from such discernment to spend our time on those who listen. What this verse teaches us is that we have to learn when to speak and when to walk away. And he says, and I love this, sometimes walking away 
is the most gospel-honoring thing we can do. Well, having traveled through these first six verses of Matthew 7, I trust and I hope that the Holy Spirit has been speaking directly to each and every one of us. I know that for me it certainly was the case in prayer and study this week. Speaking personally, this passage puts big question marks around my own attitudes and my own words and my own actions. So much so, in fact, that I almost despair of being actually able to obey Jesus here. I know, as I read this passage, that I am the guy he describes here with the log in his eye. I'm the guy who can measure out, when I want to, I can measure out some pretty uncharitable judgment on others while failing to see my own stuff. I know that's true of me. I don't think it's any accident that the next place Jesus goes in the Sermon on the Mount is the ask, seek, knock command. I need to get on my knees and pray through for God's grace to grow in holiness and not be the hypocrite that he has described here. I don't think it's any accident that he goes right to prayer after this. I'm thankful this morning, friends, and I trust that you are too, that although we have all, each and every one of us, has failed to be doers of this word, in the matter of being charitable toward others, Jesus came to deliver people who have failed to be doers of his word. Amen? I'm thankful eternally that Jesus came to suffer death on the cross for a guy like me who could not keep his law. And I'm so glad, so glad this morning, that when God looks on me, what does he see? He sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ and not my own lacking, paltry, shriveled, filthy rags righteousness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you only had so much space in your Bible to talk to us and reveal to us what was super important. And this is one of the things that you chose to reveal, this business about not being condemnatory toward others and being charitable and generous. Father, I pray that for each and every person here that you would open all of our eyes this week to see ourselves in the way that you would have us view ourselves, to not be blind to our own shortcomings, but Lord, that you would open our eyes, do that painful work in your generous way so that we would be redeemed from our sinful patterns, and learn to be merciful and generous toward others in both public and private. I pray these things in the powerful and in the mighty and in the saving name of our loving Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. And now may God the Father bless you who created all things in the beginning. May the Son bless you who for your salvation came down from his throne on high. May the Holy Spirit bless you who rested as a dove on Christ at the Jordan. May he sanctify you in the Trinity, whose coming judgment all nations look for. Amen.